0: You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Good morning to everybody. Uh, Our passage this morning is Colossians uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to chapter 4, verse 1. And if you would please stand for the reading of today's scripture. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. If you would be seated, please. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes so that we may behold wondrous things from your word. Open our eyes to the realities of life in Paul's day and allow us to understand how these principles apply to our lives in everything that we do, that we may glorify you and bring honor to your Son's name, in whose name we pray, amen. The worksite management company Deputy.com in June 2023 posted an article on their website titled, How Do Americans Spend Their Time? And this uh, article combines stats from the uh, uh, Bureau of Labor and the CDC and several other sources. And uh, as they put the data together, they uh, they found that in the course of a year, the average American spends about 133 days sleeping, 122 days working, and 11 days traveling to work. Out of the 365 days, all that, those hours and all of those days. Now, I'm betting that Houstonians actually spend 30 days stuck in traffic on the way to work. Uh, And that there are some people who are sleeping while they're involved in work-related activities or perhaps even commuting to work. By the way, some people drive. Uh, But I also want to mention that that 122 days working did not include time spent on housework or childcare. They found that the average American spends, if they spend any time on... Child care that they spend 29 days in, on child care and 36 days on housework. I think that should be flip flop, shouldn't it? But well, we'll, we'll leave that uh, uh, for the article. But uh, in, in the article, these were separate categories from work, but we all know those belong in the category of work. And if you add work, childcare and housework together, it comes to a staggering 287 days of work. Now, these many hours involved in work of every kind, paid, unpaid, supervised, unsupervised are an opportunity to glorify God. Now the subject of Colossians 3:22 to 4:1 is work. Now, in Paul's day, work was primarily done by a system of slaves and masters. Now, in that harsh world of Bible times, Paul lays out God's way of life and way of thinking about work. These are truths which apply to our own work situations wherever and whatever those happen to be. Now, my point is that Paul doesn't think about excellence at work as a means of improving efficiency or improving working conditions. The excellence at work Paul demands of Christian slaves and the fairness that he demands of their masters are a testimony to God's presence among believers. We point the way to God by the way we work and live. God's glory doesn't stop at the church door, as though God were here on Sunday and left us to our own devices in the Monday grind. Above all, we must be focused on God's presence in every part of our life and work. God is entitled to direct us in every part of our lives. In this passage, God, our Master, calls all of us Christians... His servants to do our work in a way that honors Him. We are to imitate His character in our work. God Himself works, as Jesus said. In John 5.17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. And we see God's character in His works, as we read in Psalm 92 this morning. Ephesians 2:10 says for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God's works are supernaturally given to us to do and these works include everything we do in life. We already read in Colossians chapter 1 verse 10 Uh, breaking into the verse here, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. In the words, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, the phrase to walk involves all of life. Instead of to walk, we might say to live. So the good we do those good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. The good we do involves all of our life, our family life, our church life, and that big chunk of our lives we spend at work, whether that's in an office or somewhere else. Good work applies on Sunday morning at church and on Monday morning at work. It all belongs to God. Now, I think sometimes we fall into the error of saying that work is part of God's curse on creation. But God ordained work for people to do even before we fell into sin. Genesis 2.15 says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. You might even think of it as an orchard, this garden because there were trees there for him to work and keep. And these words, work and keep, are what the priests in Israel were to do, for instance, for the tabernacle in Numbers one fifty-three, Their work was worship. And in the church age, because every believer is a priest, our worship and our work cannot be separated. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we worship our work, or that we should work so hard that we have no time for anything else, but everything that we do at work is an act of worship. Adam's worship of God included caring for the trees of the garden. It was only after he and his wife plunged the world into sin that God's curse on creation made work harder. Work as worship was broken by Adam's sin, but God wants to restore and redeem our worship so that it glorifies Him. Genesis 3.19 says, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So when we look at the, to the Bible for God's view of work, we understand that, like everything else in this fallen world, work is affected by the, tr- by the curse. But our redemption and call from God to be holy as we live in this life means that we must think in terms of redeeming all of our workspaces for God's glory too. Now, I want to consider with you for a moment the, the context in which we have come now to 322 to 41. And uh, from 3.18 down to 4.1, Paul sets out a pattern in his discussion. If you just kind of glance over verses 18 to 21, you see wives, husbands, verses 18 to 19, children and parents, 20 and 21, and then slaves and masters, 3.22 to 4.1. It's a longer section. In each of these pairs, he addresses the person under authority first And then he addresses the person who is in authority, and each has a responsibility in that relationship, no matter what it is, to glorify God. Now, let's talk about the elephant in the room. It's easy for us to think that an evil institution like slavery would make it impossible for people in it, whether enslaved or not, to glorify God. But Paul knows that glorifying God does not depend on society's broken institutions. Glorifying God depends on His grace, regardless of what situations we encounter. In the Roman world, slavery was an accepted fact of life. No one could have envisioned a world without slaves. A person could become a slave in many ways. Prisoners of war were regularly enslaved. Criminals were sometimes enslaved as punishment for their crimes. Some people sold themselves into slavery to clear a debt. There are many other ways in which someone could become a slave. But in the Roman world, slaves were from all ethnicities and constituted most of the workforce, with estimates of the enslaved population of the Roman Empire ranging from 30% to 65% of the overall population. In fact, there would not have been many free people in the congregation at Colossae who did not also have slaves in their own households. And both slaves and masters worshipped together. Now, slaves in the ancient world performed both unskilled as well as skilled labor. Many slaves were forced to do hard manual labor, just as many, but <clears throat> just as many worked as scribes as clerks or even officials in city government, or as doctors. Slaves might even have the hope of earning money and occasionally could buy their freedom. You read a little bit about that in uh, in the the Corinthian epistles as well. Now, if they had sold themselves into slavery, they might be freed after a specified time period or at a particular age, or they might be freed on the death of, of their master. Incidentally, I just want to mention that if you look at the subject of slavery in the Old Testament, you will notice how many um, checks and balances God puts on the institution of, uh, of labor, of servants, slaves and servants usually not distinguished in, in the Mosaic Law, But don't make the mistake of thinking that being a slave in the Roman Empire would have been easy. It wouldn't have been. Some aspects of the slave labor market were particularly brutal. Gladiators, for instance, were almost always enslaved people and often forced to fight to the death. And uh, even when slaves revolted, like the Spartacus Rebellion, uh, that revolt wasn't even about Slavery as an institution it was just about how we didn't we don't want to be slaves anymore is what Spartacus and his men said. we won't mention the most unsavory features of greco-roman slavery, but without being too graphic, the purposes for which slaves were bought and sold would be on a par with human trafficking today, some of them anyway but we'll have more to say about situations like that in a moment in the roman world slaves could be brutally beaten or killed by crucifixion for any reason if they gave testimony in a court of law it was always under torture and so while these were not the conditions of every enslaved person's life in roman times the possibility of abuse was ever present now, my point at mentioning is this is that slavery in the Roman world was every bit as horrible as it has ever been in any era of history you can imagine. But if Paul commands Christians in his day who are in the worst possible slavery environments to do their work well, how much more should these words guide us, who often have the freedom to choose and change our job? So, our message this morning is going to proceed along the lines of three points. Uh, first of all, good work is to be done to please the Lord. Secondly, good work depends on God's gift of the inheritance. And thirdly, God hates wrongdoing at work. So, let's start with good work is done to please the Lord. And let's read verses 22 and 23 again. Bondservants, that's simply the word for slave, by the way. Paul calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ in many of his letter introductions. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord and not for men. So verses 22 and 23 are a real study in contrast. Masters are simply masters according to the flesh. The ESV renders this earthly masters, which is a good choice, actually, for the translation because we have upcoming in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, the expression that says our, the Lord is our master in heaven. So you're according to the flesh versus uh, in heaven. ESV has opted for earthly masters and your master in heaven. So Paul really highlights this difference between people-pleasing and pleasing God. The phrases I-service and people-pleasers are set in contrast to pleasing the Lord So it comes down to what drives you in your work. Are you going to work for people, for this world, for your own interests, or are you going to work in a way that pleases the Lord? The God who gives you work needs to be more real to you than that awful boss or master that you have to deal with. God's presence needs to be more real to you than the never-ending streams of tasks They come your way at home. So he says, bond servants obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. In our text, the motivation and power that leads to sincerity of heart at the latter part of verse 22 is fearing the Lord. The Greek word fearing means a reverent respect for the Lord that makes the believer think constantly about pleasing Jesus. We have to ask ourselves often whether the way in which we are doing our work pleases Him. This is the opposite of being concerned with what people think, being worried about their opinions or, as the case is here, only working when people are looking to try to impress them. To at least to appear like you're doing good work. Ultimately, it's hypocrisy to work with such an external service, as the NASB puts it instead of eye service external service. In contrast, the heart attitude Paul describes requires the Holy Spirit to guide us, to empower us, to give us discernment in our obedience. Does... Obey in everything mean we obey orders that are contrary to the word of God or to the will of God? Since we are to obey as an act of fearing the Lord, we are not to obey sinful orders. We must always obey God rather than men when men's orders are against God's commands. Now, uh, you've probably read the story of Joseph's life From Genesis 37 to Genesis 50, an amazing big chunk of the book of Genesis is this life of uh, Jacob's son, Joseph. He was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers, and Joseph went from one unfair situation to another. Now, Joseph honored God by serving well as a household slave, but then he honored God by disobeying his master's wife when her orders went against God's commands. Now, you might think that this would mean God would just kind of wave a magic wand and bless him and he would be suddenly free from slavery, but no. The consequences of Joseph's obedience to God rather than to people meant even more suffering for Joseph. And it may mean suffering for us. It certainly meant suffering for Israel, as they were under Egyptian bondage as well. But God was honored by Joseph's faithful responses time and time again, and God used the situation for good to continue fulfilling his promises to Abraham. He used Joseph to rescue both the nation of Egypt and that budding nation of Israel from famine in his time. So in verse 23, uh, maybe I should say just just to underscore this, that Joseph is the model of, of a man who obeys God rather than people. And the consequences are not always going to be a happy ending. We just have to realize that there are some things that are more important to God than human freedom or even human life. And his glory is more important. So fulfilling his promises through Joseph's obedience was more important than Joseph being free. Now, I'm not saying that the Egyptians were right to keep him as a slave. I'm not saying that his brothers were right to sell him into slavery That's another issue, and as Christians, we fight against slavery wherever we find it, uh, human trafficking included, but uh, I won't go into the gory details there. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. See, verse 22 talked about our attitude to the Lord and our motivation and sincerity of heart. Verse 23 reinforces the idea with the command to work Heartedly, literally from the soul. This is where God gives that supernatural power to focus on Him and His glory and to do work in a way that pleases Him. So Paul wants us to work with our heart and soul to put thoughtfulness into our work with the Spirit giving us the power to do what pleases God. Not just going through the motions, but doing the work with a heart that honors Him. See, our work, no matter how important or unimportant it may seem to people, matters to God. This is why Paul says, whatever you do, whatever you do. This is the most sweeping way to say, by the way, whatever, (laughs) in Greek. It's all-encompassing, no matter the work. No matter what it is, it must be done for the Lord. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that work only means work that's done for pay. I mean everything that God has us do, everything God gives us to do, regardless of whether it's even seen or appreciated by people. Good work is... Is work done to please the Lord because He, above all else, is honored in how we do it. So, uh, this brings us to our second point. Good work depends on God's gift of the inheritance. Now, that may sound strange, but you'll see it in verse 24. Let's have a look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. Now, what is the inheritance that Paul says God will give? Well, first, the word kleronomia, is a Greek word used for wealth or goods passed on from father to son or from father to parents to children. This is not the word for wages, something paid in recompense for work performed. And there's an implication here as well. If you're going to receive an inheritance, if you are an heir, it means that you're part of the family. You're part of God's family. Isn't that interesting? Regardless of what your situation is in this life, you are part of God's family if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 16, and 17 says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit, better, to our spirit, I think. The, uh, the Spirit Himself bears witness to our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate of indignities and injustices in His life. And when Christians suffer in this life, we suffer with Him in that way. And the strength to endure this suffering comes from that hope given us in the gospel that we will be glorified with Jesus. And in our text this morning, that inheritance will be ours. And that knowledge is what fuels our hope for the future. Did you notice how he started verse 24 with the word knowing? When you know God's will, His eternal plan, and His plan for your eternal future you have a motivation in doing what's right, even in spite of and through suffering. Now, Peter elaborates this word inheritance like this. 1 Peter 1.14 says, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We already saw in Colossians 1.5 in our study that Paul speaks of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Likewise, the writer of Hebrews speaks of an eternal inheritance like this in uh, Hebrews 9.15. Therefore, He, that is Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the inheritance is full participation in the eternal state of God's kingdom that we will have finally in the resurrection. We're already part of God's kingdom, but we will have full, unfettered participation in this in the resurrection. It's not health, prosperity, or success in this present evil age. We mustn't think of... God rewarding us as though He owes us something. He's giving us an inheritance. Look at what it says again. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. I want to point out what verse 24 does not say. Paul does not say, If you work for the Lord, the Lord will reward you with the inheritance. See, that verse 24 starts with knowing. You know God's will for your eternal future, and that's the inheritance. This is the reason for your working this way, and working the way, verses 22 and 23 command. So to bring out the force of this participle, you can compare what the Net Bible says, because you know, or the NIV, since you know. The reason we do our work in this fully engaged from your heart and soul this fully engaged way with our, uh, in verses 22 and 23, is that we're already confident in what the Lord will do for us in His grace. This trust in God's faithfulness keeps us from seeking payment here and now. We do not need payment from people in the form of human approval. But there's another thing to note about the word serve you are serving the Lord Christ. It's a Greek verb, diolio, which means to be a slave or to perform the duties of a slave. It's, It's rendered to be enslaved, for instance, in John 8, 33. Every Christian, whether free or enslaved in this world, is really the slave of Jesus Christ. Christ is the real master, Paul is saying, so serve him. So, we've seen so far that good work is done to please the Lord in verses 22 and 23. And secondly, that good work depends on God's gift of the inheritance. This brings us now to our third point, and that is God hates wrongdoing at work. Colossians 3.24 to 4.1, let's read the... Just kind of I've got to get back to verse 24 to kind of launch my way forward to 25 and verse 1. Here. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So why do we act... As faithful slaves of Jesus Christ and not slaves to our earthly masters. Well, verse 25 begins with the word for. See, that conjunction connects verse 24, knowing that you'll receive the inheritance, to verse 25. Be a slave to Jesus Christ as you serve your master, trust Jesus even when your situation is unfair. So far, Paul has talked about how Christian slaves must do their work to please their Lord while also doing their work for their human masters. But now, Paul talks to slaves about their masters. Did you catch this in verse 25? The shift from second person plural, you, you plural, y'all, as we say in Texas English, or uh, I, I understand that people who live outside the Republic of Texas sometimes say, use guys, right, yeah, use guys, yeah. I I, I don't know, because, you know. Anyway, so it's y'all, right, okay. Uh, <clears throat> this is the part of the peculiarity of living in Texas, right? But y'all, uh, the shift in verses 22 to 24, we're talking to y'all, right, And then suddenly in verse 25, we've shifted to the third person, whoever does wrong. And that clarifies that he's no longer talking directly to slaves. Secondly, the word partiality at the end of verse 25 deals with preferential treatment based on social status. Paul means that an evil master is the wrongdoer in verse 25. The wrongdoer, he says, will be paid back. The verb is a different word, he will be paid back, is a different word than the one translated, you'll receive the inheritance in verse 24. See, our verb in verse 25 has the sense of, he will get for himself, as though it were a return on an investment. It's a bad investment, It's an interesting irony that the wrongdoer will justly receive what he deserves in contrast to the inheritance that's given by God's grace, what we don't deserve. So people do get what they deserve. Maybe not in this life, and that's where our patience in suffering comes in. But you see, Paul reveals a key element of God's character in the second clause of verse 25. He says, there is no partiality. The word translated partiality is a Greek word, prosopolempsia. Can you say that 10 times fast? Wow, that's a a mouthful, isn't it? The source of the term partiality, literally face receiving, is probably Leviticus 19.15. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. The Hebrew text of this verse is literally something like, You shall not receive the face of the poor, and you must not honor the face of the great. This word face shows up in the Hebrew text. And when the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek, in what we call the it's called the Septuagint, the translators brought over the concept of partiality pretty woodenly by by talking about receiving the face, and so this gets taken over in the four times it's used in uh, in the New Testament by a New Testament author different New Testament authors, uh, and everyone knows by by the use of this term that they're talking about uh, Leviticus. 19.15. So it means making judgments based on superficial reasons, looking at the face, not, not the way God does at the heart. Looking at the face, it means making judgments based on superficial reasons such as wealth, as James 2.1 puts it, social or religious standing in Galatians 2.6, or whether someone is a Jew or a Gentile in Acts 10.34, and in Romans two eleven, God is not partial in any of these areas in which people have set up these boundaries and said, I'm more important to you because of something I have that you don't. So let me try to paraphrase verses 23 to 25 so you can see the flow of thought before we get to the, uh, the last verse here. Serve Christ by serving your master, since you know that God is already going to give you an eternal inheritance, and because you know that if your master were to do you wrong, he would be paid back for his wrong, because God does not show partiality to masters, simply because they hold a higher social standing. Now, we can turn to Ephesians, which Paul wrote almost at the same time as he wrote Colossians to find support for this understanding. In Ephesians 6, verse 9, he says, masters, do the same to them, meaning your slaves, and stop your threatening, knowing, that word again, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. This Ephesians text is directly aimed at masters, unlike our text in Colossians. Paul adds in Ephesians, stop your threatening, meaning that Christian masters must not motivate their slaves with threats. Slaves could be treated with physical violence in the Roman world, so that's the first threat that comes to mind, but there are more threats than that. We might face other threats in the workplace, the threat of losing our job, the threat of docked pay, loss of benefits, being passed over for promotion. And sometimes those threats become realities the way they did for Joseph, right? But God is with us all the way through our suffering. God was with Joseph even when the threats against him as a slave became unfair imprisonment. And God is with us, too. God steps in as the protector of slaves with a warning to Christian masters not to use threats of any kind, whether physical or psychological. Threats are no way to lead, and God hates them. That's why I said God hates wrongdoing at work. God's grace extends to all kinds of people, regardless of the divisions people make between themselves. In God's eyes, those distinctions and privileges people set out for themselves simply don't exist. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And earlier in our epistle, we read, if you go back to chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, he says, "'Don't lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is is not Jew... Excuse me. Here there is not Greek and Jew... Circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. No one can excuse harsh and unfair treatment of others based on any human distinction. And God will punish wrongdoers. Okay, so verse 25 is a real encouragement. What do you do when you have an unfair boss? In Paul's day, slaves didn't have the option to leave their jobs. Now, today we have to put that boss in God's hands. Call out to God with your lament. Okay? Don't call out to others with your complaint. Call out to God with your lament. Okay? There's lots of psalms called lament psalms you can turn to for how to complain to God. Okay? Complain to God. Take that guy or that gal, to God. Now, for you and me, we could go find another job, perhaps. Now, that's easier said than done, I know, but, but we do have that freedom. And there are good reasons to leave a job, and there are good reasons to stay in a job when conditions are difficult. Leaving or staying will require faith either way, and crying out to God for guidance. The source of your difficulty may be your supervisors, or perhaps coworkers, or perhaps company policies. It might even be your attitude. Okay, sometimes you uh, just need to think through what's happening. But where the work you're asked to do, or that the company does, violates God's commands, you must trust God and do what's right, uh, even if that means suffering. Even if that means you lose your job, you must do what's right. Now, see, with Colossians 4, one. now, we can, we can put the finishing touches on this passage. He says, he, now he just turns to masters in one verse. And he says, masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing, there it is again, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, this is truly a... Strange chapter break. What are you are you surprised? Chapter four, verse one. Like, uh, and then chapter four, verse two. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Why didn't we just uh, like extend the extend chapter three to twenty six verses and start chapter four, verse one at uh, four, verse two. Uh, the the chapter divisions were put in centuries afterwards, and and. Chapters and verses were all uh, were put into the Greek Bible by a guy named uh, Robert Estien in 1551. So uh, whatever he decided became the standard. Okay, so you can you can bl- blame uh, this fellow Robert Estien. Stephanus is his Latin name. If you want to if if you want to curse his name in uh, in Latin, you can call him Stephanus. So Stephanus, what are you doing? Uh, I don't know. I mean, because 4 1 is, is the logical end of this passage. Okay, well, uh, <clears throat> verse 1 then really belongs to the end of chapter 3. So, Paul had indirectly spoken to masters in verse 25, but now he t- speaks directly to masters, literally, lords. The masters of 4 1 were also likely to have been husbands and fathers. So they've already been receiving instructions in how they're supposed to behave in each of these relationships uh, from 3.18 to 4.1. Now, in verse 24, we saw Paul say that the reasons slaves were to work with integrity and focus on the Lord was knowing you will receive the inheritance. Here, we see the same wording, knowing you have a master in heaven. The reason masters should use their leadership authority to accomplish justice and fairness for their servants is that these masters know that they're under the authority of the great master. Now, if we find ourselves in the category of masters, this verse calls us to be constantly aware of God. As we make policies, as we promote people, as we assign workloads to people under our authority at work, or if we're professors as we grade students' papers or assign reading. <clears throat> I'm standing here convicting myself now. <clears throat> but hey, you guys can handle reading all of this, right? Are we aware of how God is an authority over us at our work? Our heavenly master hears our tone of voice. He knows our attitude when we deal with those who work for us or as we work at home? The Bible isn't written for an ideal world. It's written to people living in unfair conditions. Solving the unfair conditions doesn't solve the problem of human evil. There's still a problem in here. Christians must live rightly even though they live in an evil world. God calls us to live rightly and gives us the strength by the Holy Spirit to do it. And if we supervise people in our work, we must always remember what the slave can do if he or she has an unfair master. Paul reminds us the Lord is in heaven. Now, you and I don't think that hard about in heaven, but when you say in heaven... Well, wow, you're talking about where God is, aren't you? Heaven is the abode of the highest authority in all creation, the Creator Himself. It is where the Lord is present to hear the prayers of mistreated servants. It is where the Lord heard the cry of Israel in bondage, Exodus uh, chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And the Apostle James warns those who hold power over laborers. James 5.4, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's the Lord of armies, by the way. He's the one who makes war against the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We don't want to be on the wrong end of this prayer, do we? We don't ever want to treat someone in a way that makes them cry out to God against us. Certainly, we would rather they pray to God thanking Him for the blessing of having a godly supervisor or a colleague. God will not look on any of us with a different standard of fairness simply because we might hold a higher position in human society. And so we've seen this morning that God's uh, will for us in this passage is that good work is to be done First of all, to please the Lord. Secondly, that good work depends on God's gift of the inheritance. And number three, that God hates wrongdoing at work. So the transformation that God has brought to believers through Jesus in the gospel message demands a new way of life and a new way of thinking. and it's very countercultural to the first century world it's very countercultural to the 21st century world but in different ways but for all of us knowing god's plan for our eternal future is crucial to our glorifying god and how we live now knowing god's will leads us to be conformed to christ in our relationships with others in every area of life even, perhaps even especially, the workplace. God wants us to see work as an opportunity to honor Him with the highest standards of integrity that come from faith in His provision. And even when our work is unsupervised by a human being, we still work hard under the authority of our heavenly Master at what He gives us to do. When our work is not recognized or valued, we know that God sees and is glorified. And What makes an action good is not only the act itself, but the heart and spirit behind it. If we have the right attitude and we act in accordance to what we know to be right and honoring to God, it is good work, regardless of what anyone else says. And sometimes God will use this reflection of His character in the workplace to open the eyes of those who need to hear the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we know Your Son is the righteous judge of all of us. Show us how to follow Your Son so that our conduct will be above reproach because we know that you will graciously give us the all-satisfying, eternal inheritance you've promised. Encourage us in our work when it's pleasing to you, because you're always watching, whether people are or not. Show us where we're falling short of your will. May our treatment of someone else never be the cause of their just complaint before your throne of grace. Show us how to act towards others in a way that's beautiful in light of your righteousness. May how we treat others cause them to give thanks for what you have done through us. And we pray this in the name of our matchless Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.